Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray you would open your word for us this morning. Instruct our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. How should... A Christian relates to his or her culture. It's probably uh, one of the most important questions we can ask is Christians living uh, in a place like Bellingham or Whatcom County, because of course, you know, being a Christian has huge implications on everything about life and culture, you know, family, the arts, education, sexuality. And our culture is becoming increasingly secular, going through radical and rapid cultural shifts, and many Christians would say they're very fearful about what's happening in our culture. And that raises a question, how then should we relate to the culture that surrounds us? Well, this was a major question facing God's people in Jesus' own day. Um, how do God's people live in a very the very pagan environment of the Roman Empire. And you'll notice uh, in this passage that Jesus is questioned about his views on the Roman pe- Empire and it says in verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words and they sent their disciples with him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you'll notice in that passage there that there are two groups of people who approach Jesus with this question, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this is interesting because these are two groups that not, would normally not be friends with each other, and mainly because they had such differing views about how the Jews were, relate, were to relate to the Roman culture around them, and the, you know, the Roman Empire, and specifically the Roman government. The Pharisees, on the one hand, were a group of religious leaders in Jerusalem who were looking for a Messiah who would come and lead a military campaign to liberate the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. And so their stance toward their surrounding culture was a defensive, being defensive against the culture. On the other hand, the Herodians were a group of Jews who had associated themselves with the Herodian dynasty, which was a family of Herods who were Roman rulers in Palestine during the first century. The most famous of these was Herod the Great, who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem in the century uh, before Jesus um, 
coming. And so the Herodians were the Jews who were trying to accommodate to their culture by cooperating with the Romans. And so you see these two stances being defensive against the culture or accommodating to the culture. These two stances are precisely the ways that Christians in our day tend to deal with the polarization and plurality of our culture. We either form kind of a subculture that's holding off the tide of unbelief, or um, we don't look any different than the surrounding culture. And we just try to be relevant. We, try, we offer no challenge to the, the culture around us. Well, it's in response to these two groups, the Pharisees and the Rhodians, the defensive against and the accommodating two stances. It's in response to these two groups that Jesus says in 15 words, probably the most nuanced statement of the relationship between Christians and their culture have ever spoken. This is verse 21. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus offers another option. It's not defense, defending against or accommodating to, but it is something different. And so this morning, I want to talk about these three different ways, these three different stances that we can take toward the culture around us and uh, think about Jesus' evaluation of each of them. This is what they are. What does it mean, first of all, to be defensive against the culture? Second, what does it mean to accommodate to the culture? And third, then, what does it mean to be faithfully present in the culture. And I think this is what uh, Jesus is calling us to as a community uh, this morning. So first question, what does it mean to be defensive against the culture? And you know, one way that God's people can be tempted to deal with an unbelieving culture is through taking a stance of defensiveness, you know, kind of a fortress mentality. And, uh, and this, and the way that the Pharisees manifested this defensive spirit was in a couple of ways, through politics and through purity. So first of all, through politics you know, and the Pharisees who, you know, many people may not know that if you've read through the Gospels, um, that the Pharisees were actually a very popular level movement. They were very uh, popular with lay people, very popular with the poor. And their agenda it was largely a political one. Uh, their dreams were for a, a revolutionary action against the, Ro- against the Romans. And actually, you can see that in this passage. If you look at verse 17, where they say, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was this a very loaded question because the tax they were talking about was the poll tax. It was a tax imposed specifically on the Jews living in Ju- uh, Judea by the Romans. And so this tax was this tangible sign of Roman oppression against the Jews. And about, actually about 25 years earlier, there had been a revolt led by a guy named Judas, who was also from Galilee. Jesus was uh, from Galilee and uh, Judas led a movement against the Romans specifically because of the poll tax. And here's Jesus again, showing up in Jerusalem. He's brought this whole crowd with him down from Galilee. He's there for the Passover. And, um, and so hidden in this question about paying taxes, a question about what kind of leader is Jesus going to be? Are you here to take on the Romans? Are you going to liberate us? Are you leaving, leading a political action movement? Now, the spirit of this, we're sick of being bullied. We want a leader who has some backbone who will lead us to take on the Romans. 
This aggressive spirit is a very real temptation for American Christians. You know, American Christians often complain about being marginalized in academia or in the media or in politics. And we think, you know, we need to fight in order to get our nation back. And, you know, this has very much been the dream of the uh, the religious right for the past uh, 30 years or so. Uh, The National Association of Evangelicals put out uh, this statement at one time. Evangelical Christians in America face a historic opportunity. We make up fully one quarter of all voters in the, now listen to this language, the most powerful nation in history. Never before has God God given American evangelicals such an awesome opportunity to shape public policy in ways that could contribute to the well-being of of the entire world. Disengagement is not an option. We must seek God's face for political faithfulness and abundant wisdom to rise to this unique challenge. Now you listen to the statement, you just look at the size of this dream. That if we could shape the public policy of the most powerful nation in the world, we could bring about the well-being of the entire world. It was an incredible dream, and you know, it's been very tragic as in many ways this has failed in our society. It's been increasingly secular, and you know, I generally don't make uh, political statements in our church, but um, I have to say that it is for this reason, this is precisely why so many evangelicals are responding to Donald Trump. They don't want to be bullied anymore, like the Pharisees didn't want to be bullied by the Romans. We don't want to be bullied anymore. And so who cares whether Donald Trump has views radically different than the convictions and the values of evangelicals. We're sick of being the losers, and he's calling other people losers now. And so there's this deep allurement to this aggressiveness in religious communities. So how do we deal with a culture that is going in a direction we disagree with? The first tactic of the Pharisees is political revolt, an aggressive, defensive spirit toward the surrounding culture. And what this passage tells us is that this whole mode of cultural transformation, Jesus radically opposes. You know, it's amazing. Uh, Jesus makes no move for political power at any time in his ministry. You know, when you may remember if you've read the Gospels and he's doing all these healings and he tells people, you know, don't tell anyone I'm doing these healings because he knows those healings are going to bring a huge crowd. They're going to make him king and be expecting a revolt from him. He doesn't want that. He has other purposes, other plans that he's come for. And it's, it's also interesting that none of his disciples in, uh, encourage uh, churches to grab political power. That's not their plan for transforming the world. Now, this does not mean that Christians should not be thoughtful and passionately engaged in politics. They certainly should be. But it means that Jesus' mode of cultural transformation never was and never will be through the political process. And so the first way that we can have a tendency to manifest a defensive spirit, defensive stance toward an unbelieving culture is through seeking political power. But there's a second way that the Pharisees exemplified a defensive spirit to the culture, though, and that's through purity, through religious purity. And actually, the name Pharisee likely means something like accurate or sharp, and this is because the Pharisees taught a strict adherence to Jewish 
purity codes. And, and the way this related to their political agenda was that they u- used religious symbols to mark out kind of who's in and who's out with God. And so they had all these um, religious works, whether it's circumcision or it's keeping the Sabbath, or they had all these dietary laws. And um, they use these as kind of boundary markers for their community to say, these are God's special people. And those outside who don't have these kind of badges of religious purity that they wear are those who are outside that God is displeased with. And so they created this kind of subculture and everyone who kept the code had this deep sense of kind of self-righteousness and superiority over the surrounding culture. And so on the one hand, where you see the politics was kind of a way of imposing on the surrounding culture, our values, the religious values, their ideals. Purity was a way of isolating themselves from the surrounding culture. And of course, Christians do the same thing. You know, they have little markers to evaluate kind of who's in, who's a real Christian. And we only listen to Christian music or watch Christian movies or listen to Christian radio. We have our own tribal lingua that no one else in the world uses. And it's like we're forming this little world uh, that we never go outside of. and, And it makes us feel safe and protected from the outside world. But Jesus challenges this approach brilliantly in this passage. And you see this here in verse 17, where it says, "Tell they say to him, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now, let me explain this for a moment. The coin that Jesus asked them to pull out of their pocket was a, a denarius, and, uh, and which had an inscription on it that said that Caesar was the son of God. And so most pious Jews said, you know, I can't carry a coin like that around in my pocket. It's got an image of a man who thinks that he's God. As the Romans said, okay, you can't use those coins. We'll make some other coins for you that don't have this image. And then so the Jews can buy and trade with one another. And yet, uh, here are the Pharisees, and which coins do they have? Because which coins do you think were more valuable? The Roman coins or the Jewish ones? Of course, the Romans said our coins are more valuable. And so when Jesus asked them for the coin and they pull it out of their pocket, he's saying that you're not as pure as you make yourself out to be. And the reason for that is because the illusion of being defensive against the culture through purity is that we think we can separate ourselves from the dirty world out there. And if we can keep ourselves clean, we won't be affected by all that evil. And that the problem with that is that the world and sin is not something out there in the world. It's something inside of us, inside of each one of our hearts. You know, as we, you know, in the beginning of Matthew, when it says that Jesus was going to come to save Israel, they thought it was going to be from the sins of the Romans, but it turns out by surprise that Jesus came to save them from their own sins, the sin that was in their own hearts. Because it's not something out there, it's something in here. And it's one of the most shocking teachings of Jesus that the most worldly people in the world, people who follow their flesh the most, are religious people. And they try to hide this worldliness with a show of purity, but it's actually a fraud. And the truth is that inside God's people were struggling with all the same sins that they are outside. And so a defensive spirit against an unbelieving and secular culture through politics and through purity 
will fail you. And that's why we also see an opposite response to the culture in the Herodians, who, unlike the Pharisees, the Pharisees are very defensive against the culture, the Herodians accommodate to the culture. And what does it mean to be accommodating to the culture that is around you? So whereas the Pharisees want to take up arms against the Romans, the Herodians say, take up arms against the Romans, How's, how do you expect to do that? You know, we're just a small little army of Jews. There's no way we're going to take on the world power. And unless we change our ways, unless we make friends with the Romans, we are going to become obsolete as a nation. So we have to accommodate to the dominant culture around us. And, you know, a century ago, uh, this is exactly what happened uh, in the American church. Uh, we are living in the modern era and, you know, many people in the, coming in the modern world say, you know, the things that Christians believe in miracles and in, uh, you know, that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that people rising from the dead and that the blood of Jesus takes away our sins. These are all such primitive ideas that we just, you can't believe in those as a modern person anymore. And so a hundred years ago, the, the mainline liberal church said, we need to update Christianity. And we need to modernize it and accommodate it so that it's palatable to our culture or we are going to become obsolete in the modern world. And um, the irony of it is, of course, that the mainline liberal churches who followed this path have been in steep decline over the last 50 years. Actually, they, those have been the churches that have been far more obsolete and, and had literal cultural power. Because the truth is, if you're not saying anything different than the culture around you, why is anyone going to come to church? Why are people going to spend their Sunday morning coming and listening uh, to someone talk about the Bible on Sunday morning if it's, if it's irrelevant? Why even waste their time? But, you know, more recently, there has been a movement among evangelicals that has f had the same problem. Um, uh, probably about 30 years ago or, some, or so, uh, the Barna Group uh, did a survey asking people in, you know, in American culture who don't go to church, why don't you go to church? And the answer they got was most people said, well, you know, church is, is uh, sermons are, don't apply to my life and it's not entertaining. They're not funny. I don't like the music at church. It all feels so kind of stiff. And I just frankly rather be golfing or, or watching a movie or, you know, spending time relaxing at home. And I don't know why I want to be there. And so many churches, and this was the seeker movement, said, you know, we need to adapt what we're doing on Sunday morning to attract more people. And of course, these churches brought in thousands and thousands of people and tons of people were coming in. And yet after a couple decades, they found that the people they had brought in were very immature in their faith. And they knew very little uh, uh, theology. They, um, they did not suffer well in the Christian life. They were not faithful through, through hard times. And so um, another a statistician, Tom Rayner, came along and said, you know, actually the Barna Group we're asking the wrong people the questions. They shouldn't have been asking people who don't go to church why they don't go to church. They should be asking people who didn't go to church, but now do, and have now been involved in a church for several years. Their life has changed, and now they're actively serving as members in a church and say, what was it about the church that attracted you, that brought you there? And it turns out they got very different answers. Um, the number one thing was that people said that the church taught the Bible. And uh, that was uh, the most important thing. The second thing was that the church had clear doctrinal uh, 
convictions, that they made very clear what they believed. And then the third thing was that the church was welcoming and loving and brought them in. And it was nothing about being cool. It was nothing about being relevant or accommodating to the culture. The people came to church because they were looking for something different than the culture. And the power of the church is not in being relevant to the culture, but in the church's distinctiveness. It is challenging the world to a new definition of what it means to be human. And you see that challenge here in Jesus. Um, if you look, uh, look again at verse 20, uh, where it says, And Jesus said to them, or, sorry, verse 19, Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And they said to him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and, the th and to God the things that are God's. And um, what he's saying here is, okay, if Caesar's coins have Caesar's inscription on them, give those to him. But whatever has God's image, God's inscription on it, God's likeness, give that to him. And of course, what has God's inscription on it? Everything, everything, because God made everything, so it has his mark, and especially every human being who's made in God's image has his inscription. And so where God has given uh, some authority to Caesar uh, for a time, God has authority over every area of human life. And so that means that it's insistent that to be a Christian means that I must honor God in every area of life and take his word and his, in, in the gospel and let it shape everything about, about my family and about my work and about my business. And this is what Jesus meant, that he does not want to remove us from the world. He wants us to be present in the world, but honoring God in every area of human society. And so this leads to the third option that Jesus teaches us, where he says, we're not supposed to have a defensive against spirit. We're also not to, to be accommodating and trying to be relevant to our culture around us, but instead we are to be faithfully present in our culture. He wants his people faithfully present in his culture. And what does it mean then to be faithfully present in our culture? And well, I think that essentially it means that somehow we have to learn to simultaneously identify with our culture, which is to say to people in Bellingham or Whatcom County, I am one of you. I am one with you. But to also separate from our culture, which is to say to our culture, we are not one of you. We are both one of you and we are not one of you at the same time. So what does that mean? Well, you know, first of all, how do we be present? How do we identify with our culture and say to our culture that I am one of you? Well, this is one of the reasons that our church is a very pro-Bellingham church. You know, we often talk about our love for Bellingham as a place we love to live. We don't want to live anywhere else in the world. We love the culture. We love the people here. Um, we love the, the recreation and, and, uh, and the food and the town and the community, and we want to be a part of it. So even though Bellingham is a largely secular kind of unbelieving community, there's a community we love. And how can that be? Well, the reason for that is because we know that First of all, all the people in Bellingham have been made in the image of God. They have his inscription on them. And actually, God, the Bible says that God has shown grace to all uh, people in every nation. You know, he cares for them, and he feeds them, and he gives them jobs, and he gives them families, and he gives them children. And so there's a tremendous amount of grace that have been poured out on all people. And these are all things that we can affirm about people is the, the, the presence of God's grace in their life. And actually, I had a, a, a professor in seminary 
who uh, shared a story about um, his uh, father-in-law, who uh, it was a man that his, his mother had married late in life, and he felt like it was really a, a tragic uh, decision. He was a man that he found to be very difficult to live with, and um, he had very little in common with. It was very hard for him to talk to him, and so he had to think about, how am I going to love and connect with this man who is now my father-in-law? And the one thing he found was that this man loved gardening. And he loved plants, and he loved flowers, and he loved you know vegetables and things like that. And so and my professor, whenever he saw him, he would they would talk about plants and gardening. He'd say, Well, you know, God's a gardener. This man's made in God's image. He reflects what God is like in his gardening. That's a a, a place of God's grace showing the remnant, uh, the the uh, mark of, of God's image in him. And that's a place where I can affirm him and connect with him. And so that's one of the things that we're constantly doing with our culture is we're finding ways to say that we're one with you. And we, we uh, embrace and love and want to welcome in this culture. But at the same time, we're called to be faithful in the midst of the culture, which is going to mean a separating. It's going to be a, a saying that we are different than our culture. And because all the things that we would probably value most about Bellingham, whether it's the recreation or the love for education and um, the, you know, the care for the justice and the poor and equality, um, uh, the love for God's creation, what, uh, whatever it is, all of these things that people in Bellingham value and care about are also the things that they've made into their gods. These are the things that they worship and give their lives to instead of God. And so as much as we want to affirm these things um, and we want to celebrate Bellingham, we understand that we are also calling the people of Bellingham to repentance, to turn to the Lord in faith and to give him thanks for all these things and to uh, seek to glorify him as a response to this grace. And one of the primary ways that we live faithfully in a culture is by insisting that we believe in the authority of the Word of God. We take this book and we say, I trust in it more than my own ideas, more than my own heart, more than my own culture. I believe what it says and I stand on it. And even if what it says is unpopular in our culture, I trust God because I know that He's good and He is my Savior. And so I trust Him. And so uh, um, the question is, how do we become this kind of people? How do we become this kind of church, this community, so that when, when people who aren't Christians and believe very differently from you or from me, and they still feel embraced and loved and appreciated by us more than even the people who think just like them, they find that they connect more with us. They feel more um, identity and identification and oneness with us, and yet at the same time, they feel challenged. They feel invited into a radical change in their life. How do we be that kind of community, that, that paradoxical kind of community? Well, it's only when the gospel has captured our hearts. Because who is the master of identifying and separating at the same time? Well, of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the God who made the world. He's the judge and king over all things. He's the supreme authority before whom everyone will stand and give an account. So he's very other. He's very separate from us. And yet he is the God that became a man who became poor and he dwelt among us. He entered into human culture and he has shared in, in all the weaknesses that we experience as human beings. He is both separate and identifies with us. And of course, maybe even more profoundly, we look at the cross 
And uh, here he is taking our sins. It's Jesus welcoming and embracing sinners, people who betrayed God, people who are sinful, even though he was holy, you were different than me. He's welcoming them in. He's saying, come and have your sins washed and forgiven. And yet at the same time, the cross is the greatest statement of God's wrath against sin. This is how God feels about sin. Is it, is, it deserves to be crucified. It is a statement of identity and separateness at the same time. And um, that is what we're trying to do here as a church, is to be that paradoxical community shaped by this paradoxical gospel. And when we do, then we won't be a community that's defensive against our, 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 our community or accommodating to our community, but welcoming people in to the transforming message of the gospel and into life with Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these profound truths. Shape our community by them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.